Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hi, everybody. This is Doc. And this is Jukebox. And we're talking to you from the parking lot of a TGIF because we are excited about... June 3rd. Alone, Season 8 coming out. Your favorite podcast hosts are back with your favorite show. Yes, you might know us from the John Freakin' Muir Pod, but we also have a, another podcast called Solitude, and it is the companion podcast to the hit survival uh, adventure series on the History Channel, Alone. Strap in, get comfortable, be prepared as we break down each episode every week, provide our expert analysis, and make some predictions about who we think is going to take the ultimate prize. I am human and experience the emotions of humanity. Elation, frustration, loneliness, love, and the greatest of these is love. Love for the world and its creatures. Love for life. It comes easily here. I have loved a thousand mountain meadows and alpine peaks. Randy Morganson. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the backcountry injuries, it, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not up to currently right now how it goes, how it is, if it's changed, but for, you know, they are seasonal. They would get hired and fired every year. But yet, if you, you know, they, they, needed to be on on their game and the way you get on your game in any area of the mountains is you spend time there and so these veterans who you would think would have some sort of seniority really had no guarantee of a job they didn't get uh, health benefits uh, they got paid very little of course you know you can't spend a lot up there but you also have to supply your own food for the season your gear everything else and if you have a home you know you're paying rent while you're away and so um once upon a time, I think they called the seasonal summer rangers at the National Parks 90-day wonders because they would work for 90 days. And oftentimes, you know, students from college that are off for summer jobs. But there really is a, a professionalism and, a, and a, 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 a pedigree that's needed to, um, to be a good backcountry ranger. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Mirpod. Welcome 
to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, help us out. Take just a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest. As our faithful followers know, we have a semi-regular feature on the podcast where we ask our guests for a recommendation on some adventure media to keep us connected to outdoor activities when we're cooped up at home. Well, on multiple occasions, the book, The Last Season by Eric Blem has been suggested as a must-read, especially for those of us who regularly venture into the Sierra and around the John Muir Trail. I am very excited to welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod, the author of The Last Season, Eric Blem. How are you doing, Eric? Doc, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. So... We we usually go by trail names here on the pod. So Doc isn't written on my on my paycheck. It's not on my driver's license, but uh, that's the trail name. Wondering if you might have a trail name. You know, I th- I, I thought about that, and I've I've done the John Muir Trail, uh, par- embarked on it when I was quite young to do it solo, but I've never really been a full through hiker, and so I don't really have an official trail. Name. I'm embarrassed to admit that I do not have a trail name. Maybe you guys can give me one eventually here, but no, I um. Nothing there. I'm usually, when I'm hanging out with uh, Alden Nash, she calls me the author. The author. Okay. All right. We'll see if that sticks, or maybe maybe we'll come up with something during the episode here. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that one's a little bit too, um, I don't know, descriptive, maybe. Yes. Okay. <laughs> hey, have you had a chance to listen to any of the episodes? Um, I have. I have. And uh, just I, it, it makes me want to get back into the mountains. That's really what it does. I mean, it, you, all of your listeners who are, you know, lovers of the High Sierra, you can't go a year without getting into the mountains. I mean, there's like maybe one year in, that I remember in my life that I didn't, and it felt like a part of me was missing. And having podcasts like yours is just kind of, you know, you get, you get into that zone. Everybody understands the little nuances of being a backpacker, and um, it, it, it takes you there. And I, I love that, and I'm excited to be a, a part of it. Ah, thank you for those kind words. I wasn't fishing for compliments, honest. I was actually just checking to make sure that you are familiar with a regular segment that we do called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And that is a section towards the the end of the episode where I'll turn to you and I'll ask if you can share something with our listeners, some bit of wisdom, a tip, some insight that's going to make their next outdoor adventure even better. So don't be surprised by that. I've got a couple. We've all made mistakes and we all learn from them. That's right. Wisdom comes from experience and experience comes from making mistakes. So you're, you're, you're right in the groove right there. Very good. Yep, for sure. All right. And I know you, you, you're a hiker yourself. You've done some backpacking and we have another feature that we've been doing this season called the must bring gear review. And here's how it works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day hike, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So, Eric, what's your what's your must bring piece of gear? Uh, well, first, the thought of a stranger um, packing my bag with generic gear is horrifying. <laughs> but um, I would say that I 
I like at this stage of my life, a good night's sleep. And forever I've been on the hunt for the perfect, you know, uh, sleeping pad. And in recent years, I finally um, kind of reverted up or, or I would say upgraded up to the ultra lightweight um, air mattresses. And I'm a big fan of Big Agnes. Um, that's what I've been using for probably, oh, 10 years, I would say now. And I, I just keep on, um, you know, I use them for a while. I, I have to say I've never had one puncture or a deflate on me. Um, I'm pretty good about where I camp, so that doesn't happen. Um, however, uh, I will upgrade to the lightest one every time. So the one I have from uh, probably the most recent I have was two or three years ago. I can't remember what the name is, the, like quad core or AX something. I don't, I don't even know, but it's the lightest weight version because I feel like those extra ounces and a good night's sleep at my stage of life is awesome. And that's what I use for sure. Nice. Good choice. Good night of sleep is so important out there. And even, even with the right equipment, uh, I don't know about you, but I always have difficulty falling asleep the first few nights. It just takes me a while to kind of get into the groove and uh, get into that uh, good sleep zone. Yeah. You know, I, I avoid hot chocolate on the first night. I usually bring um, NyQuil, a little bit of NyQuil um, along with all, usually helps with the sinuses as well. Like NyQuil um, with a, uh, a decongestant. And that is my first night little cocktail that I'll have. And, you, and I'll just stick to herbal tea. And that's, that's my secret. All right. You go with NyQuil. I'll go with some whiskey. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you can get the NyQuil capsules are pretty dang lightweight. And they're, you know, they're pretty easy to do. Although I got to say, there's usually something like whiskey in the, um, in the backpack as well. Now you've mentioned lightweight a couple of times now and we're early in the episode. So I have to ask, you know, what, what is your base weight? Uh, are you, are you an ultralight guy? No, I wish. Um, I still, I mean, nowadays, like uh, five, five nights, seven nights is like the, the pretty much the, the longest trip I could, I will go on these days. And so I would say if I <sighs> probably around 33 pounds or so, something okay. like that. Um, which is still, you know, for the lightweight guys is still crazy heavy. I still yeah. like hot, I still like hot food and hot drinks. I'm not going that route. And, um, I, you know, I like to have a pad that covers my whole body. Um, so it's, that's, that's I, by no means ultra light, right. In these right. Today, today's day and age, probably, you know, hovering around 30 pounds. Yeah. I've, I've struggled under that weight before. I, I know what you're talking about there. And, you know, the last uh, few episodes, I've had a couple of cold soakers come on and talk about just the, the awesomeness of cold soaking. And they've almost swayed me in that direction, but it's good to have guests like you on to bring me back in that other direction, that the hot food direction. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, again, I, I love my coffee in the morning and if I'm going, trying to go ultralight, I'll go for the via packs. But if it's a short trip, I'm definitely a pour over guy. Well, I'll bring a little bit of good stuff, but that's only for the really short trips, two or three nights. Nice. Nice. All right. Hey, let's back up a little bit uh, before sure. we get too far down on the trail. And let's talk about uh, your background and, you know, growing up when you were a kid, what kind of hobbies and sports were you involved with and how did you get involved in the outdoor adventure uh, area? Well, I, I grew up on a, I guess what we called it a ranch. It was actually a Christmas tree farm in like East County, uh, San Diego uh, area. So I, we're, we're talking oak trees and, you know, chasing bluebelly lizards and building forts and that kind of thing. So I was kind of already out there in, you know, somewhat rural area. We had a mountain behind my house 
and I would explore that. And that was kind of my thing. I mean, I was a kid that was walking around with overalls, a hatchet on my side, you know, loved uh, my dad would make sure my, the knife I carried around wasn't too sharp. So I, I loved the outdoors at a young age. I think uh, the best thing my parents probably did when I was really young, our, our TV broke one day and they didn't fix it for five years. So it was, you know, uh, that was something that, I, you know, my kids could not even fathom today. And that really, I think, led to my creativity as a writer, you know, got into reading and books and everything. But after that, probably when I was eighth grade, we moved more to the so-called big city, which was Escondido, California. I grew up in Valley Center um, and it was uh, more the big city. I'm like, oh, my God, it's everything cement. There's no dirt. What am I going to do? Um, but it was, uh, you know, from that stage forward, I just I played the average sports. I think the team sports. I played baseball, little league football. I wrestled. Um, but ultimately I blew out my knee, um, like my sophomore year, um, in football. And that kind of led me down the path of, uh, believe it or not, like more surfing and snowboarding ultimately. Um, and from that, you combine it all back together with the mountains. And, um, eventually I became very, very much into backcountry snowboarding, split boarding, um, was the editor of Transworld Snowboarding Magazine down the road, again, getting ahead of myself, but, mm -hmm. I think that really what um, led me down the path of the outdoor adventure was really just kind of my childhood and the fact that, yeah, I got to thank my parents for, um, you know, never fixing that TV it really just installed it in me. Yeah. Not fixing the TV. And it's probably a TV that you had to get up and walk across the room to change the channel. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, we had three, it was ABC, NBC and CBS. <laughs> I mean, it was like, I mean, that was, uh, what was it? Battlestar Galactica and, um, Dallas was like, you know, that was, that was, whoo -hoo, that was awesome. That was what you, that's what you watched. There you go. I think, I think you and I are of a similar age. Cause that, that all sounds very familiar. For sure. For sure. Oh, very good. Now you're not just an author. I put just in, in quotation air quotes here because you know, that's, that's awesome in itself, but you have a lot of, outdoor experience, outdoor adventure experience. So you mentioned that you were the editor of Transworld Snowboarding yep. for a number of years. How'd you get involved with mm. snowboarding? Uh, again, after, after I blew my knee out and I, it's kind of funny, you would think that was the case. Well, I, I kind of wanted to try skiing, but then I, thinking about skiing, you know, having a separate plank on each foot, you know, was a possibility of injuring my knee. Yeah. And also just had a really good friend that introduced me to snowboarding right in the early days. I mean, this is back when there was bungee cords and mm -hmm. um, uh, all wood boards, no metal edges, that kind of thing. And to me, that was like the ultimate adventure for me getting in a car with my, you know, once I turned 16 and driving a few hours to the mountains where it snowed was a big adventure. And it just, um, I kept on just wanting to, uh, go to more and more places. I ended up really wanting to be a, a pro snowboarder. That was kind of my goal in life. Um, so uh, my mom passed away when I was 17. And one of the last things she said before she passed away was if there's anything you want to do in life, you know, do it now because you never know about tomorrow. And she was a, a workaholic. Um, our parents were entrepreneurs and that was something that um, really, you know, hit home for me at a young age. She battled cancer for four years and I, um, she never traveled. I mean, they were always behind the eight ball. We didn't have a lot of money. And so I thought, you know, I want to be able to see the world. And um, that was, uh, for me, I thought, hey, I'm going to be a pro snowboarder. That was when that was just coming out. So I, I moved to Breckenridge, Colorado. I decided I wanted to be a snowboard bum, a ski bum, by reading magazines like Powder, um, ISM, International Snowboard Magazine, Ultimately Transworld. And uh, on a chairlift one day, I met a travel writer. 
And he was uh, there in Breckenridge, asked me a bunch of questions. And I finally kind of asked him, what are you writing a book? That kind of a thing. And he was basically interviewing me because I was a local. I had my season pass. And um, he said he was a writer and they put him up in a hotel and he was there for a week, all expenses paid, writing a story for a newspaper. And I believe it was Texas. I think it was Austin, Texas was where he was from. And I just said, oh, you, what a scam. You get paid for this? And he said, yeah. And I said, what did you, did you major in anything in college? And he said, journalism. And that's when the light bulb went off for me. And I thought, you know what? That's awesome. I could do that. I could see the world on somebody else's dime. And my, um, I was, I, I figured out that I wasn't going to be, you know, Craig Kelly at the time or Sean White nowadays. And that uh, what, but what I could do is live that lifestyle. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I went to college. Um, majored in journalism, minored in outdoor recreation, uh, which is ultimately how I was inspired to hike the John Muir Trail. I had great instructors in recreation that in, introduced me to writers like Edward Abbey, uh, John McPhee, uh, just all, a lot of the environmentalist writers, you know, read this Sand County Almanac, Walden, and that ultimately, um, in, well, I was inspired, actually, I think it was Dan Dustin, one of my professors, had written a story about him um, when he had writ, rep, or I'm sorry, hiked the John Muir Trail himself. And that was what inspired me to hike the trail. And from that, that's how I found the story of Randy Morganson, who what, that is the basis and became the basis for my first book. So it's kind of like that. I think I often tell kids if I get to talk to kids in college or anything, just listen. You never know where you're going to get those little nuggets of um, knowledge or just things that are going to guide you down your path. And really, if you do that and you follow your bliss, uh, good things happen. And everything from listening to my mom, meeting this travel writer on a chairlift, ultimately going back to college, taking a recreation course on a whim because recreation sounds like a no brainer. And then um, that led me to my first book. So you got to listen to those little, those little things. And, and again, you got to follow, follow your heart, follow your bliss. Wow. We covered a lot of ground right there, Eric. I've got, I had some questions to, uh, to ask you to unpack some of those things, but uh, you're doing, you're doing my job for me. You're, you're making the points that I wanted to make. And that was, you know, what great advice from your mother, what a gift that she was able to give you right there. I mean, that, that, that's a life changing uh, piece of advice right there. And then you being on the ski lift at the right time with the right person, boom, another chance encounter. It's like the, the world is guiding you in the right direction. And you're right. You have to listen. You have to listen to those moments. And it just, just you know, takes you in directions that you hadn't previously thought of. Just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I got to apologize. I did have a double espresso before we got on this one. And um, I, might, I, might, I might have a, um, some private problem with coffee. No apology necessary. This is this is great stuff. You just keep going. So speaking of espresso and adrenaline, let's talk about the adrenaline sports that you've been involved with. You've done uh, a number of things besides snowboarding. And you know what? Hold that thought right there because I want to go back to snowboarding just for a second. Can you okay. tell me what the difference is between a, a split snowboard and a regular snowboard? Uh. That's really easy, uh, really easy to picture, harder to describe. Basically, a split snowboard is a board that is split down the center and turns into two separate skis. So you can use it like a touring ski that you use climbing skins, just like touring skis. Um, but it has these special connectors, basically, that allow you to um, put on a free heeled um, uh, toe attached, you know, binding for uphill travel. 
and or just gliding over the flats. Um, but then when you get to the top, for someone like me who is absolutely terrified to put skis on and go downhill, um, you then slide the binding, you take the skins off, you slide the bindings back on in a sideways stance, and you're able to basically snowboard or, as I say, surf down the mountain. Hopefully it's powder, and um, that is why we do it. Got it. Got it. You had mentioned it uh, earlier, and then I also see it uh, in, in the notes here for part of our later conversation. I just want to make sure I had that straight in my mind. So that's yeah, a, it's a, split it's boarding. A, it's, you can anybody can Google splitboarding. It's getting huge now. Um, yeah. It was it wasn't so much when I first started um, with it, but um, I've been doing it. My first time I did it would have been in. I believe it was 94, maybe 95 at the latest was the first time I tried split boarding. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first production split boards. And now they're just, they're, they're awesome. Burton snowboards, Jones snowboards. Um, a lot of the brands now have them. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a great, it's kind of a nice uh, way for you to, you know, especially in COVID in this area of the last year, people, when the lifts weren't open, there was a lot of backcountry travel because the, the resorts were closed. But to me, it's the perfect combination of that adrenaline you get from riding downhill, but you get those of this beautiful wilderness experience and you're earning your turns. You know, you might only get one or two runs in a day, but they are, um, they mean a lot more because you've sweated your butt off to get there. Just like the views on the John Muir Trail, you've earned those views. Yeah, you do. Absolutely. <laughs> Very good. Fair to say that you were a split boarding pioneer? Oh, uh, well, I would. I mean, the pioneers were the guys that invented it, I think. Um, I would say I'm, I, I, I definitely helped to push it um, out into the public because I wrote about it in the magazines at a time when a lot of people weren't. In fact, a lot of the ski areas didn't allow snowboarding back in that era when I was there. And I actually created a, a character um, for an article I wrote. And it was called the chameleon. The chameleon obviously blends in with his environment. And I used a split board to ride up the chairlift as a skier at resorts that did not allow snowboarding. And I duck into the trees and um, snowboard down the busiest runs as I could until basically the ski patrol caught me and kicked me off. And I did that for several years at various mountains before they, you know, it's kind of the, the way to get back at the man when you're a kid and say, Hey, you know what? This doesn't make sense. Why aren't you letting me on the slope? And at the end of the day, um, and ultimately, they all have. Right. Very good. Very good. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up for me. I have sure. a, a better understanding of that now. Uh, awesome. Let's 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 play a game that I just thought of. It's a it's a new game I just invented. I'm going to call it Double Espresso Free Association. Ha. Okay. Okay. So here we go. All right. I'm I'm ready. I, I had mentioned the adrenaline sports that you were involved with, and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna list these off one by one. And after I list one of them, I want you to just Tell me what pops into your mind in that, that okay. double, double espresso state of mind you're in. Okay. Okay. Skydiving. Floating. Okay. And where did, where did you do this? Um, I did it in New Zealand, actually, in um, the South Island, New Zealand. And it's crazy. You would think you'd have that, you know, your stomach's in your throat. But when you, when you lean forward and fall out of that airplane, it's, it's like nothing. Um, the scary thing is just looking out at the world. It just doesn't look real. It's like, it's like a little play world at the bottom, but it was, um, it was awesome. Wow. Incredible. All right. Bungee jumping. That's scary because you know what? You can actually see clearly the rocks and everything that will impale you if that little, you know, rubber band snaps, but no, it was, that's as awesome as well. I did Skipper's bridge and Skipper's Canyon. It's, I think it was 350 feet. Um, and, um, I asked the guy, what's the best way to do it? And so I did backwards, 
um, and fell backwards and then slowly did like an airplane to forward. So you're actually dropping through the air and then it, then you get to see, look down as you kind of rotate down and you end up in a, in a, in a jet boat or actually it's just a raft, I think at the bottom in, they lower you into a river, but uh, 350 feet, you know, with a little, you know, it, it was um, awesome. And I have to say my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she got heckled into doing it as well. And just recently we watched the VHS tape that um, we did that 20 plus years ago and showed our kids and they were just blown away. Wow. You live in Southern California, correct? Correct. Have you heard of Bridge to Nowhere? Bridge to Nowhere? No. Yeah, it's a, it's, so they were, they were going to build a road between Wrightwood and Pasadena, I believe, or maybe Arcadia. And okay. they, during, during their, those efforts, they built this bridge, you know, way back in the mountains uh, for this road. And the road kept on washing out. And so they, they abandoned the road, but that, this bridge still exists out there. And just ends. Yeah, it's just it's just a bridge out in the middle of nowhere. You have to hike five miles to get to it, and then you hike five miles back. But this company has set up a bungee jumping uh, experience off the bridge to nowhere. No and kidding. So, yeah, so we went there with uh, with our three kids and did a family excursion, and the three kids did the bungee jumping. And you know, you you, you make an interesting point that skydiving wasn't as terrifying as the as the bungee jumping because the ground is is literally that that much closer to you. And, right. uh, you know, my oldest daughter, she had to go first. I said, why, why are you going first? Let somebody else try out the equipment. You go second or go third. No, she went right. first. And then my son had to, you know, do a, you know, just a, a, a swan dive uh, without only having his shorts on. He had no shirt on, no, no shoes or anything. He had to get, get down to one, be one with nature. That's and then, awesome. And then my youngest daughter was, was crying, literally crying as she, she jumped off the bridge, but uh <laughs> I'm going to check it out. Wrightwood, I know that's where Mountain High is. And that was one of the early mountains in Southern California that allowed snowboarding. In fact, it was the before Snow Summit, Bear Mountain, all these others that, you know, ultimately got really popular with snowboarding. But Mountain High was was one of the OG uh, resorts that embraced our 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 little lifestyle back then. Yeah, check it out. Bridge to nowhere. Very cool. Bridge to nowhere. We'll check it out. Okay, here's another one for you in our in our work, our free association game acrobatic stunt flying vomit (laughs) (laughs) um no i actually didn't vomit but it was really cool this again uh, my girlfriend at the time was at the bottom and as i got off the plane after the flight he said take this vomit bat and and blow it up with air and and carry it towards her and let her you know act like you did um but no it was great i loved acrobatic flying and we did a few things i think one of the coolest was uh, i think they called it a hammerhead where he went straight up and then he killed the engine and then as you fell backwards tail first you went, got into like a, a spinning turn and then he started the engine back up and it was just the the silence and that moment of just, you know, you're at, I think he was probably like, I don't know what, how high it was. I have no idea, but I'm, I'm guessing, you know, several thousand feet, but um, it's just this moment where he's going straight up and all you see is the sky above. And then there's just this mo- this eerie silence and then click the engine's gone. And I just was like, wow. And, he, and then as he slowly drifted back around and then he, you know, bumped up the engine. Um, it was, it was amazing. It was a very, very cool thing. And, um, I loved it. I would do it again. We were in a pit special, which is probably one of the most, um, I believe one of the most maneuverable planes on the planet. Very short. You can actually park it in a two car garage. Um, but it's a biplane 
and it was uh, just a rocking experience. And it was pretty funny. We were there. I remember that we asked where they were located, and he said, "Well, um, the it's a uh, the airfield is located between the hospital and the town cemetery." He said, "And depending on how your flight is, we'll visit one of them." <laughs> oh wow! So, yeah, it was it was crazy Kiwis. The hammerhead. That sounds more terrifying than bungee jumping to me. Yeah, I'll take a hammerhead coffee any day, but um, it it was fun. Very good. Okay. And the last, the last uh, word in our word association, our free association, spelunking. Uh, uh, panic. Um, the first time ever I experienced a true panic attack was on this spelunking trip with, again, my girlfriend at the time. And we were at towards the end of this trip. We were all in wetsuits. We had the headlamps. It was pitch dark. And we got to a point where we were going through like a lava tube to get out. And it was one of these things where you literally had to put your hands forward over your head to fit through. And we were trying to get out and it was a good, you know, 40, I think it was a good 40, 50 feet that you had to get through. And I was halfway into this. It's dripping. It's dripping. It's wet. It's small. It's dark. And all of a sudden the girl in front of me just stops. And I'm like, uh, you gotta, you gotta start going. And she's like, I can't, the person ahead of me stopped. And I had this moment of, I think my, well, my girlfriend was behind me and I said, or Lorian, she's my wife now. I said, uh, I think I'm going to lose it. And she said, what do you mean to lose it? <laughs> and I, and she said, you can't lose it here. Um, and, uh, but then once they started moving, it was fine, but I fully like started to black out. I was sweating profusely and I'm all, okay, that's a panic attack. All right. I've had a panic attack now. Um, but as soon as we started moving, I was fine. Uh, but that was, a, again, one of these great experiences. It was spelunking in some cave. There was water in there. There was eels. Um, it was a, an, another cool thing. If you want to go, I mean, New Zealand is the place for adrenaline junkies. They're, everything that you can imagine, they, they offer there. It is, a, it is a cool place, and everybody's so friendly. And I did a, a lot of these things while I was there, yeah. I don't know if you have the the same feeling that I do, but just going through those four items, skydiving, bungee jumping, acrobatic stunt flying, and spelunking, they got progressively more and more terrifying. I mean, that last one sounds absolutely horrible. I, I, I could not even think about that. I had never experienced, like I said, never knew, you know, people talk about, Oh, panic attack. Oh, well, why you panic? Just don't be, don't panic. I'm like, it was totally involuntary. <laughs> trust me. And I was just so happy to get out of that tube. I was fine in the open cave. It was still dark. It was still, you know, enclosed, but when you're that close, I mean, when you're at a point where you literally have to put your hands over your head to slide your shoulders through this little um, rocky lava tube in the pitch dark, and then all of a sudden the person ahead of you is just in a dead stop. And it was like, you know, several minutes, two, three, four minutes sitting there like, okay, let's get going. Um, it was wow. horrible. And it sounds like your girlfriend was on at least two of those four with you. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. She yeah. did. Like I said, she got shamed into the, um, right. into the uh, bungee jumping because we were there and I was actually, I, I had been assigned um, to do the story for Playboy magazine actually. So I got to do all this stuff for, for a, a magazine and um and the story actually never ran um but it was uh, it, it was really cool to do it for sure nice nice <laughs> well she's a keeper then and I, I i'm glad she went from girlfriend to wife if she went through those experiences with you yeah i know she is a keeper <laughs> absolutely <laughs> we're, we're in it for life <laughs> nice all right 
And then let's talk about another. This is also, uh, it struck me as being adventurous. You were a journalist in the field for a, was it a, was it a book or an article that you wrote called Painted Demons? Uh, yeah, um, back in 99, 1999, really before all the journalists were allowed to, you know, they were getting embedded. I um, kind of was offered to keep pace with a platoon of Army Rangers um, up on this, this rainforested area in the, on the Oregon coast. And um, I, you know, I trained up. I thought, ah, you know, at that point, I can't remember. Well, let's see here. How old was I? Uh, I was like 30-ish um, and thought I was pretty fit and could, you know, keep up with these young bucks that, you know, carry these Korean War era rucksacks at the time. I mean, the gear that they had was just horrible. And I thought I'm going to wear everything they have. They gave me um, night vision goggles or nods as they called them. Um, and it kicked my ass by the end. It was 36 hours with really without sleep, maybe like an hour of sleep, just humping through the, uh, through like a rainforest, sometimes up to your waist in water um, and no sleep, carrying a heavy load, pouring down rain. And I will just say it right here. I was pissing blood by the end of it. Um, it was a tough time, but it was a great story. We were basically on a, a mission to take out a communications bunker in this mock, um, mock country. Um, and four platoons got dropped off in different areas in this rainforest. And we all converged on our own objectives with um, Sims rounds, like gunpowder propelled paint bullets and tracers. And there was an enemy force hunting us. And um, it was basically a little mini war. And I got to write the story about it. And it was really, it was great. It gave me a whole new perspective on the military. Again, I never was in the military. Uh, I always had a great respect for the military. Um, and that was my little taste of, of, of what they do. And that was without real bullets flying. Sounds incredible. Where, where did the uh, story run? Um, there was a, ma a men's magazine for several years called POV men's POV point of view. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a Maxim or whatever, you right. know, magazines come and go. And that's, um, that's where it was. I still, I still have it um, squirreled away in a box somewhere, but um, you can actually, I think you might be able to find it. If you're interested, I'll try and find it and find a link for you. It's, it was a fun story to write. I mean, at one point I got, I was following somebody and I ended up at the front of this column and a firefight broke out and there was a sergeant that was next to me on the ground. I'm laying down, there's tracers going off everywhere. And this sergeant says, where in the F are you? Or where, who the F are you um, soldier or whatever? And I, and I remember saying, I'm it's blam. He's all blam. Who's blam. I'm all the other journalists. He's all the journalist. He said, you're at the point, son. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like, Oh my God. So it was, it was, it was great. It couldn't have been um, more classic. I have to say. Nice. I've got to read it. So if you can find that link, I, I'd be much appreciative. Yeah, it's, it, it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of F-bombs in that story because um, a lot of them coming from my own mouth. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> Very good. All right. Hey, let's segue into uh, some hiking now. Okay. So let's talk about uh, your experience in the Sierra. I know, I know you did some snowboarding uh, in the Sierra, including mm -hmm. a you, you crossed the high Sierra in midwinter on a split board. Yeah, I was, I was again during that whole era of, of working with the snowboarding magazines. And um, there's a couple of um, professional snowboarders. I call them professional sufferers. They're um, his name's Tom Burt and Jim Zellers. And there was a photographer, uh, Bill Hatcher, a national geographic photographer. And uh, they put together this um, wacky plan to, snowboard across the Sierras on splitboards when that was kind of a, you know, the splitboards were just really kind of getting popular. Um, and they set up the whole trip where we went from Tioga Pass to Yosemite Valley 
via uh, Clouds Rest, Half Dome, and then down the Mist Trail. Um, and so we, uh, as timing went, you know, you basically do the trip, you set it up. And as um, it got closer and closer to our window, we realized, oh, shit, there is a whole, I'm um, sorry about that. There's a That's whole okay. collection of, of storms um, lining up. So anyway, the, the short end of the story is it snowed almost the entire time. So we broke trail all the way across the Sierra Crest um, for, I think it was six days um, and got some great snowboarding in along the way, the silence of Yosemite and and the high Sierra in the winter is just magic. I mean, at one point I remember I was, I was uh, going across this meadow and it just felt like there was somebody there with me and Jim and Tom, of course, were way ahead of me. And I was just basically struggling, sucking air in the, in the back. And, and then I looked over to my right and pacing next to me was um, a coyote just with its whole winter coat, just trotting by looking at me like from 20 yards away. And, it was just a lot of magical experiences. It just, you, you know how it is when you're out there in the high Sierra, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll just imagine, God, imagine being here in the middle of a blizzard and what would it be like? And um, I got to experience that and, and, you know, human powered getting out there where there are places where I just had to sit there and like, just, you know, uh, knock my head with my fist, like clock, clock, clock. Is this for real? It's, it was just absolutely beautiful. Wow, what what a scene! I can picture that in my mind. You just struggling along, and this coyote trotting by from twenty yards away. That's just—I mean, epic. I mean, literally, literally pacing with me. Like I felt there was something there, and I'm—you know—when you're going, you're literally looking at your ski tips, like just going forward. And I just felt like this sense, you know, that little like prickle on the back of your neck, like I am not alone. And I just like looked up, looked to my right, and sure enough, there's this coyote just parallel to my track following me down this, you know, I was on the edge of a, of a meadow, basically he was in the meadow and I was in the trees and, um, no fear. I wasn't, it wasn't even a moment of like startled or anything. It was just this beautiful moment of like, Hey buddy. I wasn't sure how that story was going to finish. I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, you turned and you saw the ghost of John Muir or a, a bear that had come out of hibernation, uh, pretty hungry or how that was right. going to turn out. Yeah, no, it was just, just, just that. I mean, we, we got to um, cross a few avalanche paths here and there, you know, one at a time being very safe. Um, uh, but there was those, um, there were those like, you know, uh, those pucker moments where we, where that was going on. It was also just, butt cold. I mean, it was just, I mean, really cold at night and that's, you know, when you camp in the snow, it's, you know, every time I do it, I, it's great. The places you get in the winter, but I don't think that the time I've been out there in the middle of the night when it's really, really cold and you're miserable I, that I don't ask myself, what are you doing? What are you doing here? But then, you know, you realize, and here it is, how many, you know, 20 years later, and it's still so vivid in my mind. That's yeah. why you do it. That's exactly. why you do it. Exactly. What am I doing here? That's what I'm doing here. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And you've had some experience on the John Muir Trail as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, I again, I, I mentioned earlier. I I, I did uh, my first backpacking trip was up Cottonwood Pass, which is kind of a classic first backpack for a lot of people I've heard mm -hmm. over the years. Um, and uh, ultimately, I did hike the John Muir Trail from Cottonwood Pass um, solo all the way. I was going to do the whole trail. That was the plan, but uh, my knees just I I got hammered. And at that point, 
I was trying to carry all of my own food for the entire trip. So you can imagine I was young, dumb and had a 70 pound pack. Oh. And, um, and so I, my, my knees just gave out at around Florence Lake and they were just, this, one of them was just swollen. And I just, um, I, I realized, yeah, I, I think that the smart thing to do is to get out. And mm -hmm. so I didn't finish, but it was like 12 days. So, I mean, I definitely got the experience of being alone in the, in, in, you know, the high country and you get to know yourself on a trip like that. You really do. And I, what I realized was that I like people. I'd rather do it and share it with somebody. Some people love the solo. Mm -hmm. And I did meet a lot of people along the way um, and, you know, camped with some people, had some nights where I was alone. But I realized that it's, it's, it, I feel it's nice to share it with somebody. Very good. Very good. And how did you get out from Florence Lake? Because I've, I've, uh, I've dropped into the John Muir Trail three times uh, starting at Florence Lake. And so I know, you know that there's that, that road uh, going back out to Visalia. It's, mm -hmm. it's quite, quite the stretch of road. If, you're, if you arrive there without a car, I mean, how do you, how do you get out? Uh, I, if you can imagine, I, well, first of all, I was, you know, there's that John Muir Trail camp on the other side of the river, you know, um, on the other side of the water. Um, and so that's where I caught at the time. They, there was a boat that would take you across to the right. concessionaire stand. Right. And I literally just got to the concessionaire stand and there was other people there. And I just basically kept asking people, Hey, anybody, can anybody give me a ride? Oh. And I got a ride down into, is it, was it Visalia or I can't remember exactly whatever the closest town is. Yeah. There. Something like um, that. And I had, you know, I had like, you know, 50 bucks I'd tucked into my thing and I got a hotel room and I, called um uh, a family and someone came and picked me up they were going to pick me up in yosemite you know a week and a half later but instead they picked me up there so that's right. how it worked out yep very good the florence lake ferry have been on that boat several times yep yep it was awesome it was it was um i remember i i had not no intention of going out there originally so i hadn't researched it at all um now um and i and again i was trying to do the whole trip unsupplied i was also i was supplementing with fishing along the way and i did you know a lot of trout along the way and so that was what my plan was but what i didn't realize was the sheer number of calories i was going to burn through on that trip and so food food was getting uh, to be an issue but I, I i think i could have made it with what i had it was more my knees couldn't mm -hmm. and is there a reason you went south to north instead of north to south you know, Alden Nash, um, who introduced me to the whole story of Randy Morganson and everything, uh, the retired ranger, was a, f a friend, um, a family friend of, of, of one of my neighbors that I grew up near. And he had, had recommended I speak with him. And um, when I was talking to him about the trail, so many people want to finish at the high point, you know, at, at Mount Whitney. And he said, well, that's a great idea. He said, but if you don't make it, he said, you're going to miss what I, what he thought was the most beautiful part of the trail. And that was the Southern side of the trail, you know, Sequoia Kings Canyon and, and that area. And so he said, if I were you, I would start um, there. And if you can't get in and start at the top of Mount Whitney, cause there was, you know, often an issue with um, permits and whatever, even then um, he said, I would just recommend starting at Cottonwood and then coming over and catching the trail right at the base of the, you know, Whitney where it came down. So technically I missed that little tiny bit up to Whitney, mm -hmm. um, which I was fine with and um, just continued north. And I, and that's the area, honestly, where I've spent most of my time backpacking. Um, not so much out of Yosemite, all of it's been more in the Southern part of the trail. 
And uh, I'm glad he, he told me to go that route because it really is, is beautiful and pretty special. Yeah, there are some nice sites on the northern half of the JMT, but I am in full agreement. Uh, the southern half, I think, is more spectacular. Yeah, that's what he and he said. I mean, hey, it was very fortuitous and um, prophetic because he he nailed it. I mean, my knees gave out, and had I had that happened the other way around, I never would have gotten down there. And um, I mean, it would have been an amazing adventure and beautiful, regardless. But I did enjoy uh, that, the, the Southern side, um, and, you know, outside of Bishop and that's a little bit more accessible for me as well, you know, and now, so it's, it's close to my heart every time I go up in that area, um, that it's, you know, kind of the flashback of where I'd been as a young man, basically on my first solo, um, walkabout. (laughs) Right. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about what, Eric has alluded to a couple of times here, the story of Randy Morganson, what his inspiration was for that story and what it's all about. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. The John Freakin' Muirpot is sponsored by Outdoor Vitals, the ultralight backpacking gear company whose mission is to improve the mental, physical, and emotional health of mankind by facilitating impactful outdoor experiences. Outdoor Vitals creates innovative technical products with confidence-inspiring education that empowers outdoor ultralight adventurers. Their focus on performance and durability enables you to live ultralight with gear you can actually be confident in. Whether you're looking for an ultralight sleep system, shelter, or pack, or if you're looking for top quality apparel for the trail, you can find it at Outdoor Vitals. Do yourself a favor. Live ultralight. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place, for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like... My creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. And welcome back. We're talking to Eric Blem, author of The Last Season and several other books. And we've been kind of skirting around it. We've done a little uh, references to it a couple of times, but I want to spend this next segment really getting into this incredible book that has inspired and entertained so many people. Uh, as I said before, we've had guests on, on the podcast. We asked them, you know, what is some adventure media that they've, they really have uh, has made an impact on them. And the last season has come up multiple, multiple times. And so let's talk about the last season and, you, know, you you referenced that Alden Nash was a family friend or a, a friend of a family that you grew up with, and uh, you knew him. Is that is that how you got inspired and learned about the the story of Randy Morganson? 
Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. He told me uh, when I we, we, when I had a meeting at his house, literally when I was about ready to actually when I was going to hit the trail after I already had the permit and I was heading to Cottonwood, but I went out and I went to his house in Bishop and we spread out a few maps and then and my whole thing was where are some cool places that I have to camp where I have to stop what are some of the you know bullet points on the trail. And um, he told me a few places and one of them, he said, well, as you go through McClure Meadow and you were just speaking about evolution, you know, that whole area, but McClure Meadow, he said, there's a ranger stationed there named Randy Morganson. And he said, if you can catch him at his station and take a walk with him, it would be like walking with John Muir himself. And I was just, I, I, that was, you know, after I was at my recreation degree and been reading all sorts of environmentalists and of course, John Muir, you know, my first summer in the Sierra and various stories sticking. Um, I was like, are you kidding me? Oh my God, that's amazing. And so he told me, he said, yeah, he grew up in Yosemite. Uh, he used to um, carry around Ansel Adams tripod as a kid. Um, and he knows every rock, every flower, every tree, and the Latin genus name of all those and all the above. He said, if, you, if he's there, you should um, see him. And so that was really um, what happened. As, as you know, uh, if, if you've read the book, the, uh, when I went through that area, um, I was kind of a trail pounder. I had my mileage I had to take. And when I got to that area, there was a note on the door of the little, the little um, uh, McClure Meadow Ranger Station. It said, Ranger on patrol back this evening. And I think I got there. I had camped someplace so I would get there kind of an earlier in the day on the off chance I did catch him because of what Alden said. So I think it was like 1030 in the morning or 11 that I got there. And I was like, uh, I got to make my miles. I got, I, I, I got to go. And so I kept on walking. So what year was this? Uh, this would have been 1992, um, the summer of 1992 um, and or 92 or 93. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's 92. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, anyways, I got there and I just moved on down the, down the trail. Well, ended up that Alden and I, uh, ultimately, ultimately became friends along with my, our family friends and we would all backpack together starting the following year after I did the, you know, my, my version of the John Muir trail. And so for, you know, three years in a row, we got to know each other and Alden was just amazing. He's just another guy like John Muir knows the mountains better than anybody. He was, he was the supervisor in charge of all the backcountry rangers in the, on the uh, Sierra crest. And so um, he would take us places that were just amazing. And um, we, uh, I think it was what it would have been no, at 96. So what, four years later, um, three or four years later, after I did the hike, um, I got a call from him. And we were getting ready to go on a backpack that summer. And he said, hey, I never did ask you, did you meet with Randy Morganson, um, that ranger at the Miracleur Meadow? And I said, no, you know, he wasn't there at the time. He was on patrol. So I just kept on moving. He said, oh, well, had you met him, um, you'd, you'd know him. But I wanted to let you know that he's missing. He went on patrol this earlier in the season and, um, and he hasn't been seen. And there's a huge search and rescue operation going on for him right now. And I, and then that's when he started kind of spoon feeding me little bits of the stories. Oh yeah. He was having some marital problems. Um, he, he took divorce papers into the backcountry that season. And, you know, uh, some people wonder if maybe he, you know, took off or some people think something happened to him. There's a lot of conjecture about what might've happened to this guy. I mean, this was a guy who was famous, not only for his, his, um, intimate knowledge of the natural world. He was also famous for finding people who went missing in the, in the mountains. And then all of a sudden he went missing himself. 
And so the, the bells just going off in my head, ding, 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 ding. This is an amazing story. I'm a journalist. I'm in journalism school. Everything ties together. This could be at least a magazine article, if not a book. And so that's, that's really how I was introduced to the story. And a, uh, a few weeks after the search and rescue operation was called off was when I had this trip already scheduled with Alden Nash and my friend, um, he's a Navy surgeon named uh, Dr. Cup or Captain Cup at the time. And to give you a little insight into him, he, um, he had a, a great saying that he'd always say, um, and it was that all, all bleeding stops eventually. <laughs> and so <laughs> he carried with him super glue and various, you know, sutures and whatnot into the backcountry. But he, he was, he and went along with um, Alden and I, and we went to a few places that Alden thought uh, Randy might've gone. And I think about midway through our second day, we were out somewhere beyond um, Bench Lake where he had been in, in some remote little valley um, or uh, like a box Canyon. And that's when, uh, Alden told me we were crossing a meringue, one of those crazy meringues that are just, you know, just all glacial, huge rocks, and we're walking across it, and he just said, let me know if you smell anything dead, and his whole thought was something might have happened in this giant meringue, and, you know, if his body was decomposing, and that's when it really hit home, like, this is for real, this is a human being, this is a person, we might stumble upon a body, um, and um, it just um, increased my um, respect again for these rangers in the areas where they work alone and also the fact that this was serious business and um so i kind of dedicated myself that trip from that moment like even if a book doesn't happen let's every summer let's let's try and find some closure for his widow to find out you know what what happened to him and also his friends you know they they really had no idea what happened to him for um, well, I don't want to give away too much <laughs> yes, in case anybody yeah. wants to read the book, but you know, he went missing and there's, you know, again, the, the search and rescue operation. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, I just slowly, I mean, I really have to thank Alden Nash for just not only telling me about the story, but also kind of hooking me in my own right. You know, the way he hooked me was the same way I hooked the reader mm-hmm. where, you know, you know, you knew little bits and pieces about what happened. Um, and then everything else, your imagination takes over, like what right. could have happened, what right. could have happened. And before we get to the structure of the book, we covered a lot of ground right there, uh, Double Espresso. Maybe that's your trail name, Double Espresso. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's just straight up, or maybe maybe just jitters. <laughs> oh, I like it. Jitters. <laughs> Very good. But I was thunderstruck. Uh, I was thunderstruck as you were talking right there because I did not realize that your, your John Muir, Muir trail hike took place while Randy was still a ranger in the backcountry there. So I, yes. I, had, I had no idea that you had the opportunity to, to go by his, his ranger station, at least. You had the, the possibility of, of meeting him. Right. And, and um, it just it never occurred to me. I always thought that, that you came back to this, you know, you'd heard about what happened, and then you came to it and, and, and started writing, it, writing about it and, and researching it. Uh, so I didn't realize that you, you had that, that close encounter um, oh yeah, not a direct encounter, but a close encounter. I had the chance to meet him. That's mm-hmm. very, very interesting. And then I also want to talk about the the nature of backcountry rangers, because you know, after reading your book, I have a whole new appreciation for backcountry rangers. I mean, I, I knew you know vaguely what what they're supposed to do, but just getting the perspective from so many rangers that you talk to in the book and understanding, you know, what their existence is, how long they're out there, uh, what their responsibilities are. Um, 
it, it just really, really opened my eyes. It was, it was truly impressive. Right. No, that, well, that's, again, when I hiked the trail, I was impressed as well. I mean, they, they're stationed about every 20 miles or so on the John Muir Trail in this particular case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're helicoptered in or by mule train, their gear is brought in and they're there for the entire season, kind of covering whatever their quadrant is, you know, including, you know, the backcountry off trail hiking surrounding their, their area. And, um, these guys and men and women are, you know, they're, they're paramedics, they're psychologists, they're cheerleaders, they're, you know, they're all these things that um, are very much social and people person um, qualities that you have to have to be a backcountry ranger at the same time you're living alone. You know, some of them are able to bring in their, you know, their, uh, their, their, their partner or spouse or significant other to hang out with them. But for the most part, they're alone. Mm-hmm. And, um, they are there basically to, um, as I say in the book, uh, to protect the people from the park and the park from the people. You know, they, they let them know when people are camping in the wrong spots. And uh, Randy had a, 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 a very sincere love of the meadows and the meadow grass and how fragile it is in the high country. So he, he definitely would have issue with the stock and, uh, you know, the horseback, the, 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 right. the packers that would potentially um, – let their um, horses or mules graze on certain meadows. And, you know, it, it was really, for me, it was a really eye-opening experience because I got to understand a little bit from the other side. Um, and one of the things I thought was really neat that, you know, Randy and, and really I think most of the Rangers are, um, you know, sub- subscribed to, and it's that, you know, yeah, they, they are law enforcement officers, but they, uh, they don't necessarily like that part of their job. They like to help educate people. They'd much rather not give you a ticket for something you do wrong. They'd much rather let you understand why you shouldn't have done what you might have done, whether it's you know you know a, a back uh, a Boy Scout troop who moves all the rocks into a, to line the trail with rocks when they'd much rather see it natural like uh, there or you know things like that or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I thought that was really interesting to try and see it from the perspective of the rangers um, when you are the visitor just like they are and how to be uh, sensitive to the environment um, and you know use the environment but uh, at the same time be um, sensitive to what you are doing to the environment right and randy randy was really the master of that i think he did a really good job he could be a curmudgeon a little bit at sometimes and cranky um, he was definitely a flawed character but when it came to the public, you know, there was, I, there's lots of letters and things like that. There was only a few run-ins that he ever had with the public. And even to this day, I mean, this book came out in, uh, what, uh, sheesh, how long has it been? 17 years ago, 16 years ago. And to this day, I've only gotten a positive response from people who said they'd met Randy on the trail at some point. A lot of them were people who came back and had been helped by him along the way and um or were just taken by him and they re- recognize his face and or some people would send photos where they got photos with the ranger um and i would you know get those pictures and things like that so very cool he was a, yeah very cool and so just to kind of set the stage for our listeners i'm not going to give anything away but uh randy morganson was a backcountry ranger in the sierra for nearly 30 years he actually grew up in Yosemite and you did a great job portraying, you know, the back, his background and, and what, what it was like growing up in Yosemite. And then he actually left the country for a little bit and he did a, a stint in India uh, as part of the Peace Corps. Correct. Yeah. And, 
And I think he wanted to go over there because he wanted to be closer to the Himalayas, but actually where he was stationed for the Peace Corps, he, he wasn't, he wasn't that close actually. Yeah. He was in the, <laughs> fa- in, in the farmland. He was like, he got there and realized, Oh my gosh, where am I? Um, so he had to wait until his, um, his time of duty um, or whatever you would call it, his tour of duty in the Peace Corps ended before he could actually get to the Himalaya and, and climb, which, which he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he came back and he became a, a seasonal backcountry ranger. And he started out, uh, I think it was, was it 66, uh, 68, something, something to that, something like that. Late sixties, he, he became uh-huh. a, a backcountry ranger and started out, uh, I think, uh, fresh faced and, and eager and excited. And I, I got the sense as the book progressed, as his years in the backcountry progressed, that he, he became, you know, a bit frustrated and a little more disillusioned as the years went by. Yeah, I mean, they, they, the backcountry rangers, it, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not up to date currently right now how it goes, how it is, if it's changed, but for, you know, they are seasonal. They would get hired and fired every year. But yet, if you, you know, they, they needed to be on, on their game. And the way you get on your game in any area of the mountains is you spend time there. And so these veterans who you would think would have some sort of seniority really had no guarantee of a job. They didn't get uh, health benefits. Uh, They got paid very little. Of course, you know, you can't spend a lot up there, but you also have to supply your own food for the season, your gear, everything else. And if you have a home, you know, you're paying rent while you're away. And so um, once upon a time, I think they called the seasonal summer rangers at the national parks, 90 day wonders because they would work for 90 days. And oftentimes, you know, students from college that are off for summer jobs, but there really is a, a professionalism and a, and a, 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 a pedigree that's needed to, um, to be a good backcountry ranger. You know, you are a, uh, you, it's a, it, it's a skill set, And um, I think that he realized and he felt ultimately that, you know, they weren't as appreciated as say the front country rangers were who, you know, patrolled in, in patrol cars and on the cement and what, and whatnot, yet they really were putting it out there. They were, you know, risking a lot. And um, it was that lack of, I think, um, security, job security that weighed on him over the years because he would have loved to do it. And a lot of them would love to do it, you know, forever until their body wore out. And a lot of them do. And it's, it's, a, it's a tough transition because they do fall in love with the country. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's they, and everyone I've ever spoken to, the Rangers especially, there's a withdrawal um, just when they leave from a summer. But when they have to retire, it's, um, it's even harder. There's, you know, depression and whatnot just from leaving that area. You know, they've been seeped in this beauty and this place that is, uh, you know, just like the book. You know, the Sierra is a character in my book. Well, um, the Sierra in this case or the mountains, wherever they are, is, is, a, is a part of their heart. And um, they really do um, take it personally um, when people, you know, don't treat it. You know, they, they think of it like right. their own home. It's like mm-hmm. you're, you're, in their, you're in their backyard. Um, and so they, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing for them. And, they, and Randy, I think just over time, it just got a little bit disillusioned with it, along with his own personal problems that were right. going on. Um, that, you know, you always say you're not supposed to bring your life to work. And um, I don't think he did, but he definitely struggled with that, especially towards the end. 
Right. Yeah. We, we've talked about on this podcast with uh, long trail hikers, you know, the, the whole concept of post-trail depression, you, know, you leave the trail and you have to reacclimate into, you know, normal busy life. And it, it uh, you just get down in the dumps when you, when that happens. And so I can, I can truly see how he would finish his three month stint and have to go back into society. And, and uh, he actually made decisions in his life where he prioritized the, the Sierra over other things. And I think, yep. you know, that may have had some impact on his, his relationship and, and uh, may have contributed to some of the issues he had going on there. But, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you, you do a, a good job kind of, you know, there's because of the issues, because of his frustrations with, with the national park service and um, because of the relationship issues, there was, a, there were questions about what, what, what might have happened when he disappeared and you do a good job exploring all of those different uh, paths in the book. And what was really interesting to me was, you know, I've walked by these ranger stations uh, while, while I was on the John Muir trail and I've had experience with these rangers um, and I didn't really understand, but it was nice seeing all of those places in the book and saying, I've been there, I've been there, you know, little yeah. five lakes, little five lakes ranger station. That's where chopper was helicoptered out. That's where he earned his trail name. Cause he was choppered out uh, through the help of the ranger at little five lakes uh, uh. because he had, he had altitude sickness. Wow. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, exactly. All these little these, these spots. And um, that was really for me. I mean, Randy was a big, first of all, they all take, keep journals in the backcountry, you know, and those are, you know, public record journals that I had access to, but he also kept his own personal journals. And that was part of my research where I was, I'd love to read his own words. And oftentimes he would say, I'm here on the shores of, you know, Little Five Lakes or, or, or Charlotte Lake or wherever it might be. And I would seek that spot out. I mean, it, that was a great fringe benefit of this entire book was it gave me an excuse to go and spend a lot of time. I think, you know, 50 plus days of, of backpacking um, to, basically follow in the footsteps of where, of his, you know, where he was on that final patrol versus just where he spent his life every season for, you know, so many years. And that was just, just amazing. And to read, you know, to find actual spots, you know, he would have sometimes sketches and things like that, or, you know, I'm here in the shadows of, of, you know, an evolution basin and um, I'm on the Northeast side of Mount Darwin and, well, geez, I got to go to the northeast side of Mount Darwin. <laughs> I know, right there. <laughs> right. And so you were able to to have access to the journals and read some of those journals. You were out on the trail for 50 plus days. Did you have the opportunity to talk to other rangers that were involved uh, in the search and rescue and who were connected to to Randy? Absolutely. I am a, I, if anything, I over-research. I, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, believer in journalism. Uh, you know, if you can't find something that you need in a story, you know, it's better to have a hole in a story than to fill it with bullshit. And if I couldn't prove something right um, in, or couldn't figure out something in the journals, I would try and find somebody who was there. And there were certain stories about Randy, you know, different, everybody's got anecdotes about friends that kind of convey who they are. And that was what my search was in talking to all these people who knew him best, his best friends, some people who, um, you know, many people who were on the search um, for him, the dog handlers that were on the search and rescue operation, the pilots of the helicopter with the FLIR, you know, forward-looking infrared capabilities. I, I interviewed as many people as I possibly could to piece together the search and rescue operation. And, and really, you know, what I found in when I was introduced to environmental writing 
was, you know, my, my teacher, uh, Dan Dustin again, and, and Larry Beck is another uh, gentleman and professor who was amazing and very influential in my, in my direction in life. But they, um, he chose, uh, Dustin chose to let us read the Monkey Ranch Gang first. That was the first thing, you know, and that's what a great pick, right? And you know why? Because as a college student, if they had told me to read Walden first, I would have been, you know, maybe not so fired up. Um, and so that was kind of the idea that I followed with this, you know, there's the best way to influence people is to tell stories, I think, that they can relate to. And what better way to get somebody interested in a person than this mystery of this guy who was the man who was an expert at finding people who went missing, and then he went missing himself. And, you know, the pathos and everything of what led to this and piece this together first. And from that, you're going to learn about who he is as a person. And so, you know, again, just like Alden Nash kind of spoon fed me bits of his story that hooked me, my idea was to hook the reader with the, the mystery and the search and rescue operation. But by the time they get to the end of the book, they're going to have a great understanding of the mountains and also, you know, some environmental messages and some more things that maybe alone would be a little mundane and a little boring to read. But when you mix it up, you know, the idea was uh, you get a good balance. Very good. Very good. That I was, one of my questions was going to be, what do you want readers to take away from the last season? But you, you just, you nailed it right there. Yeah. The, um, that uh, one thing interesting in, in that regard, when I met, um, when I failed to meet Randy on the, at, at that, um, at that um, station on Charlotte, I'm sorry, in uh, McClure Meadow, I, um, when I was going through his own journals, I found a excerpt somewhere where he was talking about meeting somebody on the trail that was on such a rush. He couldn't take time to, you know, smell the roses, so to speak, smell the wildflowers, smell mm-hmm. the polemonium. And so he called them trail pounders. And he was just like, and there's a part in the book where he talks about this, you know, he couldn't understand them because they're just in such a rush to make their miles. And I'm like, dude, that was me. I, I would have met him had I just wanted to hang out in, oh, not a, not a very cool place. I mean, McClure Meadow, are you kidding me? It's stinking, it's, it's amazing. And um, I could have hung out there and waited for him and I might have met him face to face, but I didn't. So my lesson really that I took away was from Randy himself um, because I had done that. And that is to slow down and take a look around. Mm-hmm. That is the takeaway from the book. Slow down, take a look around. And that was really um, important for me. And I was, I was a trail pounder. And to this day, I'm not so much into that making miles as I am in as to, you know, Hey, let's, let's take it kind of easy and enjoy it. And, um, and I think one of the Rangers that I interviewed, one of his sayings, um, uh, Rick Sanger says, I think it was, uh, slow your pace or um, slow your pace, double your fun or half your, half your, half your speed, double your fun. Nice. And uh, it's something like that. And it's very, very true. Um, I, I think nothing wrong with the, with the athletes out there that are out there trail running and doing that as well. You know, Hey, I, I'm totally all for that. Um, better to be out there anyway than no way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's, I think it's important to slow down and smell the wildflowers. Right. And I was also struck by uh, the structure of your book and kind of the alternating chapters. I don't know if it was every chapter you did this, but you, you kind of did alternating of, you know, a chapter of, of, you know, him missing and the search going on. And then uh, interspersed, the next chapter would be, you know, some, some background and history and, uh, you know, pieces of Randy's life leading up to right. this. And right. t- t- tell, tell us a little bit about that. 
Um, kind of what I was just saying a minute ago was uh, it really is a mixture of a biography and a, and a mystery and an, or adventure story. And um, I, there's, you know, you can either go chronological, um, you know, you want to hook somebody, right? You want to give, especially nowadays, not, maybe not even as much back then, but nowadays you got to give a person a reason to keep reading. Um, attention spans are, you know, like nothing. And um, so I, I believe that my challenge then was exactly that. Like, I want them to keep reading. And so let's hook them. Let's give them the ideas of what might have happened to him. And then let's slowly start interspersing him. And what I wanted to build a show was to build up so people would understand what an expert he is, how he had spent his life in the mountains and dedicated to it. And so how could this guy, of all people, get into trouble in the mountains or, Oh, maybe it was his old interpersonal things going on. Maybe he um, walked out of the mountains and, you know, wanted to disappear. Maybe he actually um, orchestrated his own disappearance. You know, maybe this happened. Maybe he killed himself because he was pretty depressed. All these things that I was hearing, I just basically conveyed in, um, in ways that would keep people turning pages and it was my first, you know, big book solo project, so to speak. You know, I'd written and co-wrote a few other books before that, but it was kind of my first solo al- solo album, kind of, so to speak. And I, I lessons to learn. It, it could have been a little shorter. It could, it, and I, I had an editor, Henry Ferris, was very smart and very wise because he read it through the first draft or the second draft, and he and he loved it. And he said, "I got to tell you, we could spend a few months here and whittle this thing down." He said, and what you're going to find is some people are going to absolutely love the detail and other people are going to hate it because they're going to want to just fly through as fast as they can. And he said, I will leave it up to you. They're trail you pounders. To, yeah, they're trail pounders through the page. Great, great, great page, analogy. I'm going to page pounders, page pounders. Absolutely. And so I just thought about it and Randy himself was a journaler. And in fact, when so many other rangers would in their journals, they would, they would just write very minimal and he would actually go long in his journals. And this you've was got, basically, you've got expert excerpts in there. His, his writing was incredible. Yeah, exactly. And I loved it. And I thought that was the most, I mean, how can I honor this guy's life? And I, I use his words. And so my thoughts were, um, as I was trying to figure out, okay, am I going to spend a few months and you really whittle this down and really tighten it up? Um, or am I going to let it, let it breathe a little and keep these details in. And um, I thought, you know what, in to honor Randy and especially a lot of his writing, um, I did that. And sure enough, some people loved it. Most people loved it, I have to say. Uh, but there were, you know, people who said, nope, it's a, the book's a little bit bloated. It's, you know, you could have tightened this up. And that's the way it goes. People who love the book and love the mountains, um, people who have a connection to nature, um, love it. And that's, and that's really who my reader was. And um, that's who I focused on. Well, for what it's worth, my two cents, Doc's two cents, former English teacher and avid, avid hiker. uh, I thought it was awesome. So congratulations. I appreciate that very much. Well, it was, it was, it was definitely um, an amazing book to write and, um, and to research. And I love the research. I think I don't know, nonfiction authors. I think a lot of nonfiction authors love the research more than the writing. The writing is tedious. The research is, is like a flowing adventure. And it's very true. I'm, I'm going through it right now. I'm like, you know, pound, you know, they say you pound your, pound your head on the keyboard until it bleeds. And, that's, and that'll be words. And um, it, that's the hard part about, about the process for sure. Well, that sounds like a good segue. Let's leave the last season right there. 
Uh, let's not give anything away. If our, I, I highly encourage all of our listeners to uh, go online, go on Amazon, go out to your local book bookseller and pick up a copy of the last season and find out what happened. Uh, incredible book. You're going to enjoy it. Not going to regret it. You'll be inspired for your next hike out there. So let's segue now to other projects that you've, uh, you've worked on and what, what you're currently working on. So what, what other titles are out there and what are their, what are their uh, subjects? Um, well, the last season was, again, kind of my, my com- coming out project, so to speak, where it did really well and, you know, got some, uh, some good following. And um, after that, because of 9-11, honestly, I was uh, kind of taken by, um, at some point, Stephen Ambrose and, you know, a few of the World War II uh, journalists who were covering World War II were talking about how so many World War II veterans were dying off and their stories were dying with them because they never spoke of their experiences. And after 9-11 and, you know, everything started, the more contemporary, you know, war against, so-called war against terror or war, war um, on terror. And I thought, well, this is history happening right now. There's a lot of people serving their country right now. Um, serving our country and I wanted to honor them. And so I basically told my agent, you know, I'd like to try and tell a story um, while it's fresh in their minds and, you know, keep the politics out of it, keep my voice out of it and tell their story as best I can, as accurately as I can. And uh, that was what I um, wanted to do. And I ended up uh, doing writing the book is called the last, or I'm sorry, the only thing worth dying for, which was a story of a, the first special forces ODA or operational detachment alpha or a team that went into Southern Afghanistan after nine 11. And they teamed up with a little known statesman at the time. His name was Hamid Karzai. And um, he ended up being the president of the country. And so I, by chance uh, hooked up with the captain of the team. Uh, he read the last season. Um, and he said that he loved the fact that I was not a writer for the New York Times or for the Wall Street Journal or you know any of the newspapers. He said, I can see that you're just a journalist and a writer and no axes to grind, no politics to push. Um, and so he said, I'll tell you what, if you get the blessings of the men on my team who did, the family members of the men on my team who did not come home, um, I'll, I'll sit down with you and, and tell you the story. And that was my first um, basic uh, journey into telling the story that got me into more of the military and special operations community. And sure enough, um, it did really well. And it was my first, uh, it was a bestseller. Um, and then uh, from that, I uh, learned about a Navy SEAL who was on SEAL Team 6. And um, it, it was a gentleman who passed away in combat. His name was Adam Brown. And uh, he was just a legend in the SEAL community. And um, he had a pretty interesting past. He had been a crack addict at one point, and uh, he turned his whole life around and rose above this darkness in his life um, as a drug addict um, to become a Navy SEAL, got waivers to join the Navy. And it was kind of a redemption story. And um, I wrote that. It's called Fearless. And then after that, I jumped back in time to the Vietnam era, and I told the story of a special forces uh, rescue mission in Cambodia, and Roy Benavides, who was a, uh, a part Yaki Indian, uh, part Mexican, and as he says, all-American um, kid who joined the military um, from, he was in Texas, and again, just one of these people who overcame a lot in life and uh, rose above all these uh, challenges to ultimately become a hero he was uh, awarded the the um, medal of honor ultimately by ronald reagan and uh he was wounded 30 times i mean just as a snapshot 
he came into a hot landing zone. They couldn't get in. These guys were surrounded. They were using the bodies of their men for cover and they were going to fly away. And he said, just get me as close as you can. I'll get to them. And so they dropped him off like 70 yards from this little circle. He ran through enemy fire, um, fomented or uh, put together a defense ultimately um, was credited with saving eight people's lives. At one point he was holding his own intestines in after hand-to-hand combat and he kept going. And um, he, uh, the story was just so crazy. Ronald Reagan, when he gave him the medal of honor um, said, if this was a movie script, you would not believe it. And so anyway, I ended up again, approaching the family and the the men from the helicopter company that also um, was part of the rescue and re put together the story. So, um, really just, uh, that whole era of, of, of military, I just, it was kind of my way of giving something back again. I never served in the military myself, uh, but definitely, um, a great respect for, um, for what they do for our country. And, um, that's kind of how I got into that. And right now I'm slowly, the, the next book I'm, I'm writing right now is kind of back into my, my snowboarding roots. It's more of a, uh, a book in the, in the realm of the last season, um, an avalanche story, a biography, and I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into what it is, but it's, it's, to me, I kind of feel like it's my opus. It's, it's bringing together my roots along with, you know, what I've learned about writing biography. And I'm really excited to, that'll be out in about a year. Well, I am hooked. My, my reading, <laughs> my reading list has just grown by four books. So uh, awesome. looking, for, looking forward to exploring those with you. I appreciate it. Fantastic. What, what's next for you in terms of outdoor adventure? Oh boy. Anything I can do, anything I can get outside is an adventure at this point. You know, I, I, as far as a big trip, I, I'll be going in um, backpacking in, um, in um, September into the Sierra. Um, and honestly, right now I can tell you with absolute certainty, I have no idea where I'm going to go. All I know is I'm going to go wherever Alden Nash tells me to go. And, um, and it's always good. And so I'll be doing that hopefully in September. And uh, I have kids and at any time I can get outside anywhere. I surf as well, um, going down into uh, to Mexico, uh, Yucatan Peninsula this summer as well. Um, and kind of, kind of explore some of the cenotes and the ruins on the Yucatan, which is I'm pretty excited about. And other than that, um, my adventure right now is, is telling this story that I'm trying to convey to, to again, honor this um, individual I'm writing about along with uh, this horrific tragedy of an avalanche that occurred and try and tell the story with balance and, and um, authenticity to um, honor those who didn't make it and, and those um, who worked their butt off to save the guys, people who did. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm excited to, to read that one. So Jitters, you know where we are right now? <laughs> jitters uh i'm guessing that are we at the um the pro tip or something like that oh you are on it yeah, that's right we're at the pro tip insight of the week what mm. uh little tip trick or insight do you have to share with our listeners to make their next outdoor adventure even better okay well i'm gonna get can i give you a couple absolutely we, we have never turned down an extra pro tip on on this on this podcast Okay, well, one thing that I, I learned on one trip was, um, you know, the little eyelets that are, look like a U that, you're, you're, that you lace your boots with? Um, they're, you know, they look like a little hook, right? Yes. Well, I got to tell you, in a very precarious spot one day, I was walking and somehow the loop from my other double knotted boot hooked onto 
the uh, hook on the opposite foot. And I went down so hard in a rock pile that almost, you know, broke something. And so ever since then, I will take a pair of needle nose pliers or pliers and bend those things down to a hook. So it's hard as hell to lace them, but you will never hook it with your opposite foot in a place where you don't want that to happen. Cause it Man. can be disastrous, disastrous. Yeah. If you had done that on a, on the side of a sheer cliff, you know, the path on a side of a sheer cliff, that, that could have been big trouble. Right. And what are the chances? I mean, it's like a little loop and somehow I brushed against it and hooked it and I went down like a fly swatter. I mean, it was just, and so again, that's something that I always think is like, a. a I've never read about it anywhere, but I always tell people about it. So anyways, I would say that's a really good, um, let's call that a, a preemptive strike against disaster. Okay. Um, another thing is uh, you never, where you put your tent in, 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 in rainy situations. I got in a situation where it rained so stinking hard that I was literally floating in a place where you had downhill drainage, but it was so much water coming down. I'd, I'd never been in such a torrential downpour in my life. And so I was going to say, you know, you see those beautiful flat, sometimes maybe it's got a little corner of, you know, it's in a rock or you'll see like that beautiful hard sand between two chunks, huge chunks of granite. You're like, wow, that is perfect. Well, just take a look at that spot and make sure there's a little bit of drainage because uh, in the Sierra, especially um, when, there was, when a storm can come in, again, I've been in a lot of rainstorms up there, but I was in one a couple of years ago that was so torrential that literally the water was like seven inches deep. And I was realized that I was actually that big Agnes was definitely a um, pool became a pool toy um, and everything was fine. I mean, the whole thing stayed, I stayed dry, but it was a close call. So pro tip, those beautiful, beautiful flat spots that you find oftentimes take a look, even if there's drainage, make sure that there's plenty of drainage because they can become a jacuzzi, a spa, a spool very quickly. Nice. Very good. Very good. So there you have it. That's it. Episode 20 of season two is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Jitters and I want to thank him for joining us this week. Jitters, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Well, I have a website, old school website, ericblem.com, E-R-I-C-B-L-E-H, like Henry, M like Michael.com. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, although I got to tell you, I'm not really good about doing very much until like right now I'm in my cave. And so I, I, I post stuff here and there, but I'm, I'm kind of in my cave at the moment. So not a whole lot of content on there, but you'll find some pretty cool, some pretty cool um, pictures. There's definitely Sierra stuff on my Instagram. So I would love it. Are you kidding me? I can always use more more people follow me on Instagram and Facebook and all that. So my publishers love that. I love that. And, um, and one thing I do always try and do is I, I do write people back when they write, take the time to write me. Um, I respond. I don't have an assistant at this stage in my career. I'm not Stephen King or John Grisham. Um, and um, just if, if it takes me a while, I apologize and follow up, but I, I definitely try to respond if anybody has any questions or anything like that. And, and um, I, I appreciate the time. Yeah, that's how we connected. Uh, you, you got right back to me. There you uh, go. On social media. So that's a, that's a true story. And yep. uh, make sure that you are following him on his social media. Make sure you're out there buying his books. Can't recommend him enough. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. 
Eric, I'm also looking to share your recommendation for a book, a movie, documentary, website, YouTube channel, something that will keep uh, our listeners connected to outdoor adventures. We call this our adventure media recommendation. What do you have for us? Other than, other than your books, that's stipulated. That's stipulated. Right. What other adventure media do you have out there as a suggestion? Well, I'm a big fan of, of paper magazines. And have you guys heard of the Adventure Journal? Uh, yes. Steve, Cas- Steve Casimero, who um, used to be with Powder Magazine, um, is, is great. Um, if you're into fly fishing or snowboarding, the Snowboarders Journal, and I think they also have the Fly Fisherman's Journal. Um, uh, Jeff Galbraith up in the Pacific Northwest does the, those. They're beautiful magazines, kind of like the Surfer's Journal that you want to collect. And um, again, it's kind of keeping alive those the the spirit of of outdoor magazines. You know, paper magazines. I'm still a big fan of. Um, so I would say go that direction. And, you know, I don't have to tell anybody online, you can find whatever you want online, but uh, that's something that's, that's pretty special and close to my heart. So I say support those guys, subscribe to them. Very good. Very good. Thank you. That's a wrap from the John freaking mirror studio. Any shout outs to friends and family, Eric? All, all of them. They've, everybody's been so supportive of, especially, you know, I, I have to go into, 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 I go dark for long periods of time. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I go deep in my stories, um, not shallow. And so that I often disappear. So uh, my wife, my kids, uh, my family, my friends, everybody, they've all heard the excuse of the book. What's going on with Eric? Uh, the book. And that's what I'm, what I'm working on. So um, yeah, everybody out there and, and Hey, I'll do a, a shout out to my mom. I haven't done that in a long time, but you know, she gave me that initial advice to, to follow your heart. If there's anything you want to do in life, do it now. And um, because you really don't know about tomorrow and man, you can't, you, that, that, that advice is um, so important that, and to, um, you know, like I said, when I told you a story about her, uh, everybody keep your ears open for those little messages in life that'll guide you down whatever path you may need to be on. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're struggling through a snow-covered meadow and there's a coyote 20 yards away pacing you. The trail (laughs) is the trail. Embrace the suck. You got that right. legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment oh that's awesome don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment